Good morning again. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your divine providence. We thank you for even what we just sung about, the salvation that you have wrought for us, that we have a hope of glorification. We pray that you might cause us to grow in our love for these truths, that we might cling more tightly to these promises, that you might comfort us more, and that you might help us to preach these encouraging truths to those around us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel, as you may recall, interpreted the, wall, the writing on the wall for Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans. And you might remember as well the uh, strange language, meanie, meanie, tekel, and parson, or however you want to pronounce that. And in chapter uh, 5, verse 27 of Daniel, Daniel interpreted the word uh, tekel for Belshazzar. And we read uh, the following as the interpretation of this word. He says, tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was compared to and held accountable to an external standard outside of himself. There was some kind of a standard, a rule, a guide, a moral, ethical standard. And Belshazzar was compared to that, and the Lord tells him, you are found wanting, you're inadequate, you don't measure up to this standard. He was found deficient. And of course, as you know from that story, that very night, the king was killed. There is something here in this verse that is offensive to the modern man. There is something here that is offensive to everyone, to Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians and whatever your religion, race, ethnicity, political leanings, all of those kinds of things, whatever you want to categorize people by, legitimate categorizations, illegitimate categorizations, all the people of the world. There's something that's offensive to all of us in this particular verse. And the thing that is offensive is this. In this universe, a scale exists that weighs people. Not physical weight. (laughs) But that weighs people by their morality, by their ethics, by their behavior, by their righteousness or lack thereof. Now we believe that for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have uh, repented and believed in the gospel, that our desires have been conformed to Christ so that we no longer despise this reckoning, this accounting. But even for us in our unglorified bodies here before we go to heaven... We do experience snapshots back to our former way of life, and ah, it chafes me that I would have to behave and conform to this standard. We uh, live in a culture where you are told on a constant basis that there is no scale that you will be weighed by. This is a very popular way of thinking um, across many different philosophies of the world today. 
You are told that there is no God, there is no standard, it's just you, so you do you. You do whatever you want to do. One might consider the French writer from the 18th century, Marquis de Sade. Uh, Some of you know that he found pleasure in inflicting pain on other people. So much is his name associated with torture that we actually refer to uh, this as sadism, as the pleasure of torturing other people. His philosophy is what happens when there is no standard, when there is no guide, when there is no accountability. Do whatever you want. You do you. Well, one person happens to prefer donuts, and the next person happens to prefer torturing people. Who are you to say, without any standard, that you could do this, or that this is right, that this is wrong? There is no standard at all. One might consider the contribution of modern psychology to this problem. When one believes that my environment made me do it, quote-unquote, as did the founder of behavioral psychology, John Watson, then one no longer is accountable to anyone or anything. When you believe that it isn't my fault, then no scale can weigh you, and certainly no scale can find you wanting. There are other contributions to this modern problem as well. One may think of the contribution of um, uh, Darwinian evolution, While all evolutionists don't hold to this particular thing, one of the very big implications is my genes made me do it. You have psychologists saying my environment made me do it. You have this saying that my genes made me do it. One example of this is uh, an interesting story, a sad story. Uh, In 1924, two teenagers murdered a boy in Chicago. One of the reasons that this story um, was so uh, widely publicized at the time was because it didn't make sense that these two boys did it. They were um, at a prestigious university. I don't know if it was Yale or something along those lines, but they were at a prestigious university. They came from wealthy families. They had everything that they needed at their fingertips. There was no reason why they would do this. And I want to read to you uh, a a snippet of the attorney who represented these two boys. Uh, He said this, talking about one of the boys in this murder. He said, is he to blame for what he did not have and never had? Is he to blame that his machine, referring to the boy's body, is imperfect? It might be defective nerves. It may be a defective heart or liver. It may be defective endocrine glands. I know, I know it is something. something wrong, something's wrong with this boy's body that made him commit this murder. He could not have helped it. Can't you have sympathy on this person, this murderer? It was not his fault. His genes made him do it. And of course, we could go on story after story after story. All of our combined efforts as a society to escape accountability for our actions has left us in shambles as a nation. You look around everywhere and nobody is responsible for anything. It wasn't your fault that you did this. And yet, there is a scale that exists in the universe outside of yourself that you will be held accountable to, whether you measure up or don't. We read this very clearly in our passage today in Amos chapter 7, where the Lord says, Behold, I am setting a plumb line 
in the midst of my people Israel. Behold, I am going to set a plumb line in the midst of my people and see if they measure up to the standard or not. Amos chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up all the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. We're going to use the following outline. Uh, I did, we did hand out um, a little outline. Uh, I try to do these when I can. Um, uh, but uh, of today's passage... Uh, so this may provide you with a little bit of structure to kind of what the passage is indicating to us. And you'll see some repetition here um, in the first and second vision. And then the third vision will uh, be a little bit different than the first two. Uh, but simply the outline is, number one, a vision of locusts, two, a vision of fire, and three, a vision of a plumb line. Up until this point in the book of Amos, as we have been working through this verse by verse, the, the book has been about Amos interacting with Israel. Those two, Amos is giving a message to Israel. And now this particular part of Amos, it switches focus in a little bit in that it is now describing to us the interaction between Amos and the Lord. And so there's a shift that takes place here. And now in this interaction between Amos and the Lord, we have three visions. And each of the three visions... Uh, begins with the same expression. I've underlined this in your outline in each of these. And it simply says, this is what the Lord God showed me. And so this vision, this first one, if we were to read it again here, this is what the Lord God showed me. He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Okay? So this is the first vision. The first three verses describes the first vision, the interaction between the Lord and Amos. And basically what is happening here is the Lord is showing Amos a vision of locusts coming and destroying all of Israel's crops. You remember that God has promised judgment for the people of Israel because they have sinned in some pretty egregious ways. And so now the Lord is beginning to show Amos, this is what I'm going to do. And he says, I'm going to send a locust plague on Israel. Now, the timing of this particular destruction from the locusts is particularly bad for Israel. 
Because the plague is said to have happened. If you look at the passage here, it says, when, when is the Lord sending the locusts? You see that in, in, in the passage here? He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and this was after the king's mowings. So the king's mowings is uh, a reference to some sort of a government kind of attacks. The government was taking the, the first growing for themselves. And so that means that the people in Israel have been given up their first mowings, now is dependent on the, on the second growth to survive off of. And so the Lord tells Amos that I am going to time this particular judgment so that it takes place just at the time of Israel's greatest need physically for their own survival. The locusts will come. They've given all of your crops to the government. And now it is time for your own food. And it's going to be decimated. One might say and describe this particular section this way. When it rains, it pours. Right? This was a particularly vulnerable time for Israel. But Amos interjects. We have an interesting interaction that takes place between the Lord and Amos. And Amos interjects, and he begins to plead on behalf of the people for mercy. Lord, please, Israel is so small. Relent, don't do this thing. He asks God to forgive them. He bases it on the feeble nature of Israel. And this is particularly insightful. One of the reasons that this is particularly insightful is because next week, Lord willing... We are going to see that we now have, you had the interaction between Amos and the people where Amos is preaching the word to them, and now you have the interaction between Amos and the Lord. But next week, Lord willing, we're going to see another interaction between Amos and the people, this time with the people talking to Amos, and they're angry at him. Now here's what's interesting. Amos is pleading on their behalf, and yet they still want to destroy him. I remember, um, I remember experiencing this one time uh, when we used to live in Greenville, South Carolina, through uh, the Lord's providence. I had come into uh, contact with a homeless man down there, and I was uh, trying to help this guy, and so we would help him out with food and phone cards and uh, I think a few times got him a hotel room and that kind of thing, and just trying to minister to this guy. We were was trying um, to no avail, but trying to do a Bible study with him and point him to Christ and to the gospel and all these kinds of things. And I remember um, one year we were having Thanksgiving at our house, and we had some guests over at the house. And uh, he calls me up on the phone, and he says, I'm hungry, and I need some food. And so... Um, I took one, one, of the, one of our guests, one of the guys that was with us, our family, we made a, a meal or put together a meal. Kristen had made a Thanksgiving dinner, homemade Thanksgiving wonderful dinner, and we piled all this delicious homemade food on a plate, and we left, and we went and met him where he was at. 
And we got out of the car and walked up to him and said, hey, we brought you some homemade Thanksgiving food. And I like to think of myself as a kind of patient person, okay? I like to think that I don't get mad very often, but I got mad on this day <laughs> because he looked at that plate and he said, what do you, I don't want any of this stuff. What are you ta- I wanted to go to the buffet. You need to take me to the buffet right now so I can go get some food because I don't want any of this kind of stuff. Oh, I got so, I was, I had to reel myself back in. I was this close to throwing the plate at his feet and getting in the car and leaving because I was so angry that you would say, we, this is, this is a thousand times better than the buffet. My wife has labored over this food. We left our Thanksgiving meal to come to you, and we've done a thousand kind things for you. Not only this, but the months leading up to this point, again and again and again and again, and you spit in our faces. What is wrong with you? Sometimes, do you ever, you have to restrain this, but sometimes you want to shake people. What is wrong with you? This is what's going on with Amos here. Amos is pleading for these people. And he's begging, Lord, please be merciful, be merciful. And he's showing these people kindness after kindness. And while they may not appreciate this, even the fact that he is preaching judgment to them is an act of kindness because he is giving them an opportunity to repent. And so he's pleading with the people, please repent. God is going to pour out his wrath. And then he's pleading with God, please be merciful. And then the people are like, we hate you, get out of here. You kidding me? This is oftentimes what happens when we preach the gospel. In the gospel message, I know that sometimes we can distort the gospel when we preach it to people. But when we preach the gospel to people, it is, please repent. We love you and we want you to know Christ. It is not, the gospel message is not, we are better than you. If that was the, if that was the message, then I wouldn't need the gospel. The fact that I need the gospel means that I'm not better than you. And so these people despise Amos for his, his kindness. Yes, we need to cultivate patience with people. But this is a frustration. And some of you may be able to tell your own stories of times where you ministered and you reached out and you poured out into people and then they spurned all of that grace that you showed them. Amos is pleading with the Lord for Israel. And in spite of Israel and in spite of all of that stuff and everything that they deserve, we are actually shocked to find out that God does give mercy. Amos's pleading is actually successful. Now, of course, not in removing all the judgment, but in minimizing it. And so we see that in verse 3, simply here. What do we see in, in, in verse 3? The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be. Our God is a merciful God. He's a patient God. He's a kind God. He's a loving God. It shall not be. And we come across an interesting word in this particular verse, and some of you perhaps have already identified that interesting word, and perhaps some of you may even have a question in your mind 
and are asking yourselves, what does that particular word mean? And the word, of course, is relented. This word shows up twice in our passage today. The Lord relented. The Lord relented. And it is interesting because it is unusual for us to speak of the Lord relenting. It's more normative for us to speak of us relenting. Or sometimes, although this is not the majority of the times this word is translated in Hebrew, but sometimes this can be even translated as repent. What does it mean to say that the Lord relented? What does it mean to say that the Lord, uh, in some translations, repented? And of course, this brings up no small theological discussion uh, on what it means for God to relent or how we are to understand this. And even how are we to understand the relationship between my prayers as a Christian and the Lord's relenting as we see in this passage. And so what I'm going to do here is wait a minute, okay? Because I'm going to explain this in the second occurrence of this word. We're going to get to it a second time in this text. So in a few moments, we're going to look at that. But what I would like to say for right now, suffice it to say for right now, let's acknowledge this. God uses the prayers of the saints in ways that have real effects in this world. Meaning that prayer is valuable. I will say that us Christians living in the 21st century need to reclaim our love for prayer. This is what Amos is doing here. Lord, please, please, merciful. I would say that the value of prayer has been degraded in our minds today. Many different reasons that this exists. The underlying reason, the reason at the bottom of it all, is because we are weak in our faith. Part of it is that we don't suffer. I, I, I don't want to minimize anybody's suffering because we do suffer. But if you were to compare what we have today with the history of the world, our suffering is so minor. It is so minor. I mean, you look at, you look at the, the, the Puritans and... You know, 10 out of their 11 children die. I mean, there are some people who understand those kinds of heartaches, but so what do we do? I don't need to pray. Uh, What do people do? What do people do who believe in prayer? And who believe in obedience. If you are a person who believes in prayer. And you believe in obeying what God has revealed to you in scripture. What do you do? You pray. What do people do who don't believe in prayer. And who don't believe in obedience. They don't pray. I don't know of any other way to slice this up. 
Either you're acting like you believe in prayer or you're acting like you don't believe in it. And the Lord has called us to intercede. And we see that it has real effects in this particular passage. God said, I'm going to send the locusts on Israel. And I'm going to send it at the worst possible time when they will have no food. And Amos says, please don't. And God says, okay, I won't. It's a prayer. How does all this work together? Well, hopefully we'll try to unpack this in the next second vision. So let's look at it. In verses 4 through 6, we have another vision, which is the vision of fire. And it begins with the same statement. This is what the Lord showed me. We see this. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. The second vision is a, uh, another report. It is a report of a judgment by fire on Israel. Now, not much is told of this particular one, except that it is a devouring fire that eats up the land. And Amos takes one look at this judgment, and it's too much for him, just like the locust plague is too much. And so in like manner, Amos pleads for mercy. He asks God to cease. And what is the reason that he gives? It's the same reason he gave in the last one, and that is this. Israel is small and cannot stand. Amos says this judgment would completely overwhelm Israel. And interestingly enough, for the second time in a row, God, what? He relents. We see the same exact wording. The Lord relented concerning this. And so now that we are at the second instance of this word, we are going to ask ourselves the question, what does this mean? Sometimes I like to start off by telling us what things mean by telling us what they don't mean. So let's start there. Some of you may be aware that there is a particular heresy floating around. Sometimes you may hear the specific name of this, and sometimes you may not hear the name of it, but you just hear it being discussed. And that is a particular false doctrine referred to as open theism. Has anyone heard this phrase before, open theism? A few of you have heard that doctrine before, or that false doctrine. This particular heresy of open theism teaches that God does not know the future and that God is caught off guard by the events of this world just like we are. And so God is in the moment responding. And so God is here kind of almost as if he was, you know, uh, uh, human, but, but maybe just one step above human. He's not sovereign in, in any uh, definition of the term. And so all of a sudden a tornado comes and, and it knocks down this house and it, it kills these people. And the Lord is like, oh, I, I didn't see that coming. I, oh, I should have known. I, I, oh, what, these people died and now what am I supposed to do kind of a thing. And, and the Lord is just in the moment responding and, you know, he's, he's kind of 
almost a God that's, that's pleading with us, but has no control. He has no power. And so, please, I just, I want you to, lo- to love me. If only you would do this thing. And there's kind of this, this um, uh, bringing of God down. Open theism, then, would, would um, allow for the view that God is relenting here because he was responding in the moment. Of course, again, I'm telling you this is not what this means. But open theism would, would say, essentially, uh, per, perhaps one of the things it could say is that you know, the Lord was kind of getting out of control here, and he was kind of in a bad mood, and, and all of a sudden he was really mad at Israel, and then Amos comes along, and he just kind of pulls the Lord back down to reality, and the Lord's like, oh, yeah, I, you're right, I, I kind of got away from myself, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and not do this particular thing. Okay. Of course, this is a blasphemous thought. And we could not possibly entertain the thought of explaining this with open theism. I want to read to you a passage um, that helps to shed some light here on the sovereignty of God and his knowledge of the future and his knowledge of all things. In Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, we read this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done. God declares what will happen, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish all, not some, of my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. There's no messing with God. I mean, this passage puts together and weaves together God's omniscience. He knows all things. But not only is it teaching us that God knows all things, it tells us that God is actually bringing things to pass in the world. That he is causing things to happen. Open theism cannot possibly explain a passage such as this. God purposes to do something and he does it. And so then the question remains, if this is not an explanation of how God relents, then what does it mean that he does relent? And I would say that the best passage in Scripture to go to to explain this is 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15 uses the word relent, and it uses it three times, and all three instances of this word relent is the same Hebrew word as the two instances of relent in our Amos text. Does that make sense? Okay. So we have five occurrences that we're going to look at of the word relent. And all five of these are the same Hebrew word, twice in Amos, three times in 1 Samuel. And I'm going to read to you three verses in 1 Samuel. Now, if you have the ESV in front of you, the ESV translators translated this Hebrew word as regret, okay? 
but it's the same Hebrew word, okay? Just they translated it differently, relent and regret, okay? So 1 Samuel 15, 11, I regret or I relent that I have made Saul king. So God says that he relents or regrets this particular decision. And then you have in verse 29, an interesting verse. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. I said it was three instances in this. There's actually four instances because this verse says the word twice. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. God, so let's go back. 1 Samuel 15, 11. I regret that I've made Saul king. Verse 29. I don't regret anything. Verse 35. Samuel did not see Saul again till the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted or relented that he made Saul king over Israel. So you have a statement that God regrets making Saul king. Then you have a statement saying God does not regret anything. And then you have a statement that God regrets. Regret, I don't ever regret, I regret. So what happens, what's going on in 1 Samuel? Did the author of 1 Samuel go on a vacation between writing these passages and he forgot what he was writing and then somehow he was like, uh, got mixed up and he contradicted himself? No, there's no contradiction here. That's not what's happening. So what Why is it that the Bible can use the same identical word and say God does this and God doesn't do this? What it means is that when when God regrets, actually, let's go back to 29. What does it say here? He is not a man that he should have regret. He's comparing the kind of regret that God has to the kind of regret that a man has. And simply the passage is teaching us that God's repentance, quote-unquote, or his relentance or his regret, quote-unquote, is of a variety and a brand and a kind that is not the same as man's. He relents in a different way than man does. And I I have not found a better statement on this, I think, than what Piper says to describe this. And so I'm just going to give this to you um, because he really consolidates this here well. He says, the repenting which God does, and he's looking at the first Samuel passage as well in verse 11, is not like the repenting man does. In fact, it is so different that in one sense it is not a repenting at all, as verse 29 says. God does not lie or have regret. It is not based on ignorance or deceit. The repenting of God is the turning of his heart in a new direction, and this is kind of the key statement here, but not one that was unforeseen. God does not repent because he is caught off guard by some turn of events. That would indeed be like man. Okay, We repent or regret things when we are caught off guard. Say, oh, I didn't expect that you would do this, but now I'm going to do this. But the glory of Israel is not a man that he should repent. When the Bible says that God repents, it means that he expresses a different attitude about something than he expressed before. 
not because any turn of events was unexpected, but because the turn of events makes it fitting to express a different attitude now because of a change of circumstances. Okay, so one might think of um, the preaching of Jonah, right? And he says that Nineveh has to repent. God is going to destroy the nation. And he preaches, and they repent, and God relents. That kind of a relents, a relentance, is that a word, relentance? I don't know. <laughs> that kind is something that the Lord does differently than us because the Lord knew what was going to happen already. And he had planned to not send that disaster. And he simply used the circumstances of this world to work it out in that kind of a way. Let's take this and apply it to Amos. Here in Amos, we learn that God said he would send a specific judgment to Israel. Amos prayed, please don't do that, and God didn't. Now, because God is sovereign, he is not caught off guard by this change. He doesn't say, oh man, I never factored in the fact that Amos might pray for these people. Let me reconsider my options here. He's not relenting in that kind of a way. In fact, God planned it this way all along. He knew what he was going to do. He had to because why? God had to know what would happen because he is omniscient, he is omnipotent, he is sovereign, he knows all things, he plans out the end from the beginning, and nothing catches him off guard. He is in control, and nothing is chaotic with God. God is stable. I don't know um, the best words to describe this. Probably any word you could choose would 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 be short. Um, but uh, one one author said that God is not static, but He is stable, meaning that God is not static in that He says, "If you." Don't repent, I'll do this, but if you do repent, I'll do this. He's not static. He's not only doing one thing in the world. He'll do this, or he'll do this, or he'll do that, or he'll do that, but he is stable. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. He's dependable. He will always work in accord with his character. He will never be chaotic or out of control or disorderly or his emotions got the best of him today, and so he did this and lashed out in, in, in this unjustified anger. That's not our God. He's stable. He always acts in accordance with his will, with his purposes, and with his character. This is why he's trustworthy. This is why his promises are dependable. This is why we say we can trust that when we repent and believe on Christ, he will save us because he is reliable. He is a rock. He is a foundation. He is sturdy. And that's what we see in this passage. What I'm, what I'm trying to indicate is this verse is not painting a picture of a chaotic God. It's painting a picture of a stable and orderly God who works out his purposes as he has ordained from the beginning. Part of God's working out of his plan is including the prayers of Amos in this. He worked it out so that he would include that in his plan. I don't understand it. I, I can't 
fit all the mysteries of providence together (laughs) and say, here you go. (laughs) There is always going to be a sense of mystery in the way that the Lord works. And it's okay. Here's what you, you only only need to know two things from this, okay? There's two things you need to know from this. I'm not going to do anything until I can figure all this out, okay? Good luck. You need to know two things. Number one, God is sovereign. He knows all things, and he's completely in control. Indisputable, undeniable fact. Number two, that sovereign, completely in control, all-knowing God commands you to pray to him. Are there any questions? <laughs> what? Pray. He, he asks you to implore him. He asks you to pray. In, 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 in Luke 18, he gives the, 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 the parable of the, 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 the widow who goes before this unjust judge. And the judge is like, man, she is just nagging me to death. I'm going to give her what she wants so she stops nagging me. And he says, pray to me like that. That's how you're to pray to God. Get, implore the Lord. Well, I, I have to figure out. Stop it. Just pray. That's what he told us to do. So what should we do? We pray knowing that that is part of God's will and that the Lord works out our prayers in the real world. Whatever you want to say, I don't get, that's fine. But Pray. And that's exactly what Amos does. But things do take an interesting turn in the next section, and that is our final section, the plumb line, where we read this. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Israel of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Does everybody know what a plumb line is? Okay. Here's a picture of a plumb line. Okay. Um, I don't know how often these are used today. Uh, I know that lasers and stuff can be used, but a plumb line is a simple tool that you can um, use to see if a wall is straight or not, right? You want to see, so you put this weight at the bottom of a string, and you can see in this picture that the wall is not straight. You can see that the plumb line comes down straight, and then the wall kind of goes off at a little bit of uh, an angle. Uh, We uh, used to use this back... uh, Many years ago, I used to um, refinish gym floors, and we would paint game lines and center logos on these floors. And the way that you paint, you, you have to have, when you, when you paint the game lines on a, on a gym floor, you have to have a starting point so that all the lines are straight and orderly. The, the starting point does not come off the wall. You don't make a line next to the wall, you actually make the starting point off of the two baskets. And so you drop a plumb line from each of the baskets uh, on the backboard, and there are two dots on the floor. Um, 
and everything is measured off of those two dots. In fact, if you look at an older gym floor, you can actually see where they took nails and hammered nails down at those spots. Uh, and if you go look under there or look by some of the game lines, you might see little holes there on a very, very old floor because that's the way that they, uh, that they used to do it. But in, in any event, a plumb line gets you your point, your frame of reference. Everything has to be square based on these two particular points. In this case, the wall has to be straight along this line. And so the plumb line is a standard that things are measured against. And so here's the illustration. Israel is the wall, and God's word or his law is the plumb line. Right? Pretty simple, straightforward illustration. God says, I'm going to measure you by my word and see if you're straight or crooked. And when God measures his people against that plumb line, the wall is crooked. It is not straight. It falls short in much the same way, though a different metaphor, we read earlier in Daniel 5.27, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And so the Lord weighs the king and he doesn't match up to the standard. The Lord measures his people Israel, and they don't measure up to the standard. Remember, we started off by saying, you are not the standard. The standard is outside of you. And that's offensive to our ears to think that I must conform my life to something else. Now, the Lord has, in this particular passage, held back his judgment so that it will not be as severe as we saw with the locust plague and the fire, yet he still will judge. We read that the Lord says he will never pass by them again, that he will make their high places desolate, their sanctuaries will be laid waste, and he will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. This last one, by the way, is fulfilled in 2 Kings 15.10, where we see uh, that fulfillment. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, what do we make of all of this. This is a weighty text and a weighty passage. One of the central themes of this section of scripture is simply this a plumb line exists that people are measured by. It exists. We happen to have it, by the way, which is right here. And those who don't measure up to the plumb line are killed. Let me say this another way. You are not God. Meaning, you're not the plumb line. Let me say it another way. You have no authority over yourself, God does. God gets to tell you how to behave, God gets to tell you what the plumb line looks like. Now, this passage also teaches us something else. The Lord, in his grace, sometimes in this earthly life, blunts his judgment so that no human being, while on this earth, faces the full force of his wrath. God in his kindness has said, I will not do this thing. But there is coming a day 
when time will be up and when mercy and patience will be over and God will pour out his wrath on mankind in full, sending all unbelievers to the lake of fire for eternity. And in that place, there will be no prayers that can blunt his wrath. There will be no good deeds that will dull the knife of his judgment. There will be no change of mind in that place that will cool the fire. You will be trapped forever and ever and ever to be a recipient of God's righteous anger against sin, never to have hope again. Now, here's the scary part. When God holds his plumb line up against you and against me, we all fall short. There is not a one person in this room who measures up. There is not... Every person in this room deserves the eternal wrath of God. Here's the good news. God sent his son many years after the prophecy of Amos and his son lived a life on this world where God took his plumb line and he held it up to his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, for the first time, there's a man who's walked this earth who measures up flawlessly, perfectly. There's no deformity in him. There's no sin in him. There's no diverging from the righteous standard of the word of God. In fact, we see this very clearly in Matthew 3, 17. You may even say that this is the passage where God the Father holds his plumb line up to his son and he simply says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now here is what happens. For every person who repents and trusts in Jesus Christ, God will count Jesus' plumb line as your plumb line. He will put that plumb line up against his son, and he will see no flaw in it at all. And then, the son of Adam will repent and believe in Christ, and God will take that plumb line and say, this one also measures up because I am crediting the righteous perfection of Christ to this person. This, by the way, is why Jesus had to die because this only solves half of the equation. God will never forgive By sweeping his justice under the rug, we know this. We know that justice must be satisfied or else God would be unjust. And so why does 
Jesus die on the cross? Because God was measuring him in that moment by your plumb line. He was saying that this sin deserves wrath and he pours out his wrath on Christ on the cross in full so that we have traded places. Justice, mercy. They kiss at the cross. They come together at the cross. God, here is the hope of the Christian. You read Amos 7, you see the heavy and harsh hand of a holy, sovereign God who will not tolerate sin in his presence. And then he says, if you repent and believe, I will measure you by measuring Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. And so quite simply, I don't have any expanded application today. Believe the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Love the gospel. Because we read this passage in Amos and we see the harsh hand of God and then we recognize that with the Lord is also mercy and grace and forgiveness and we can be with him in heaven for all of eternity because of his righteous mercy and forgiveness. So preach that gospel message. You will be measured. You will be measured by a plumb line. Yours or Christ's. Yours or Christ's. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this passage. Help us to trust you. If there be any who does not know Christ as Savior, we pray that they might repent and believe in him today. We thank you for this passage and for the truth that it gives to us. In Christ's name, amen.